Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, the mask mandate is coming to an end. But some officials and school boards think that's premature. Independent MPP Randy Hillier is banned from Twitter. Two people associated with Queen's Park are in the race for the federal conservative leadership. And we'll speak to one MPP who got nominated to run again and then decided, nope, I think I've had enough after all. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, we have talked on this podcast many times about how decisions are made at Queen's Park, whether it's epidemiological science or political science that's leading the way. The province made a big decision last week on mask mandates. Masks will no longer be required in restaurants or schools, and not surprisingly, Many people think there's more political science than actual science behind that decision. What are you hearing? Well, the province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, made the recommendation to government. Uh, He insisted at his uh, final regularly scheduled press briefing last week that it was not a uh, a decision made for partisan reasons or to to help out the government. Uh, Though, of course, in this context, the Ford government did accept uh, Dr. Moore's recommendation. One imagines they accepted it very gratefully. Uh, Many uh, people, uh, people with disabilities, people who are immunocompromised have made very clear that they they think this is uh, premature. They're unhappy with this development. Uh, At least one school board in Ontario, the Hamilton Wentworth Board, uh, says it's actually going to uh, defy the government's policy and uh, urge students to keep their masks on. Uh, The government says that if school boards want to go that route, they need to first talk to their local medical officers of health and get uh, what's called a Section 22 order. That's the the medical officer of health uh, uh, making a formal rule. Uh, The mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, uh, came out against this decision by the provincial government as well. Uh, You know, Bonnie Crombie has not been... uh, uh, universally, let's say, uh, uh, in favor of every single public health measure uh, during this pandemic. She was one of the mayors who uh, thought that things were being locked down uh, too much, uh, too often at, at various points during this pandemic. Uh, not surprisingly, the the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario also expressed some concern that the mask mandate was ending too soon. Obviously, elementary teachers unions have a, a, an interest in uh, the, the safety of their members. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I'm not an epidemiologist. You are not an epidemiologist. Uh, I, I don't want to pronounce about what uh, the likely outcome of all this would be. But, you know, uh, numbers have been trending downward, though they've flattened out a little bit recently. Uh, numbers may, may continue or may resume dropping rather, in which case, great, everybody will be happy with that outcome. Uh, but Obviously, the concern is that if the government has moved too soon, uh, it would be very unfortunate, uh, both in just, you know, human consequences and also in political ones, if the government had to reverse itself and bring in uh, more stringent public health measures going forward. Well, let's add another group to the mix here. There's a group called the Ontario Children's Health Coalition, and they issued a statement last week calling for masking to be maintained in indoor school settings to protect children and their families. The group says now is not the time to end the mask mandate. 
And the president and chief executive officer of the Hospital for Sick Children, Sick Kids Hospital, Ronald Cohen, says he'd have preferred the decision was made two weeks after March break was over. The theory being many people are going to come back from vacation to faraway places and who knows what they will bring back with them. Now, when critics say political rather than epidemiological science may be driving the bus here, what do they mean exactly? I think it's conventional wisdom at this point that this government's chances of getting reelected are in direct proportion to COVID being in the rearview mirror. Uh, so if it looks like things are getting back to normal, if people are able to go to restaurants and have a normal meal without, certainly without a vaccine passport, without masks, uh, you know, if, if people feel like it is pre-2020 again, whatever that means to them, in theory, people should be happier and because happy voters tend to re-elect governments, that would be to the benefit of the progressive conservatives and Doug Ford. Now, it's worth saying that, you know, political pressure doesn't just mean crass partisan opportunism. Uh, the Ontario COVID-19 science tables, uh, Dr. Peter Juni, uh, it was quoted last week attributing the end of masking to political pressure, and, and that quote traveled very far, very quickly. Uh, but he, he later clarified that he meant just, you know, a more general desire from the public to move on. It wasn't uh, specifically that he was attributing um you know, malice or misconduct to uh, the, the governing progressive conservative party. So even though there is still, you know, considerable um, angst, for lack of a better word, about their, uh, about the end of mask mandates, you know, the government is going to go ahead with it anyway. I'll also add, I mean, we've seen this play out before that, uh, you know, we can remember, for example, people getting very, very angry about uh, many things over this pandemic. Uh, but one in particular that comes to mind is the the opening up of uh, testing to uh, testing of symptomatic people for COVID-19 uh, in private pharmacies. You know, people spent like a week getting really furious about that on social media. When was the last time anybody in Ontario actually thought about that? You know, these things come and go. And if the course of the pandemic continues to improve, I suspect this will be another one of those issues that we're angry about for a week and then it passes. And if things don't get better, if things get worse in the pandemic, we're going to get angry about that too. <laughs> Um, but of course, you know, uh, lots of other provinces are going this direction too. Uh, British Columbia has uh, announced that uh, its mask mandates ha have ended. Uh, Quebec, you know, most of the big provinces are actually moving faster than Ontario on this score. We are here in the Ides of March, which is simply a fancy way of saying the middle of March. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Julius Caesar is nowhere in sight, thankfully. But this is an anniversary of sorts here. It, it all started, JMM, two years ago this week. This is when it all began to shut down, right? Remember that? I, I do. I, I remember being told to take our podcasting equipment home and <laughs> get ready for some busy weeks. That is exactly right. Okay. Well, let's move on here and talk social media. Last week, we talked about the behavior of independent MPP Randy Hillier, who represents an Eastern Ontario riding, at least until June. He's not running again, but he's been sanctioned by the legislature. But another authority has also punished him. Mr. Hillier has been kicked off Twitter. What's your reaction to that? Uh, you know, this 
amounts to a, a more serious penalty for his conduct than not being allowed to speak at Queen's Park. Uh, our listeners may remember I, I pointed out that he's been he's been disciplined by the legislature. He can't speak in the chamber itself until he apologizes for some of his conduct. But he also hasn't spoken in the legislature since 2020. So I, I don't think that that penalty uh, matters to him. Uh, being kicked off of Twitter, on the other hand, probably matters a lot more. Uh, he, he used Twitter quite a lot uh, for not great reasons. It's the, his conduct on Twitter is part of what got him sanctioned by the legislature. Uh, said, you know, provably false things, uh, deliberately, uh, uh, you know, misconstrued facts about vaccines, about uh, his political opponents. Uh, and Twitter, I'm not sure exactly what was the straw that broke the camel's back. I think I lost track of that one. Uh, but Twitter uh, has finally decided that uh, enough was enough and uh, Mr. Hillier will no longer be allowed on Twitter. Am I allowed to confess to some complicated feelings about this? Absolutely. Okay, then I'm going to do that right now. Yes, uh, Mr. Hillier did put some pretty ridiculous stuff out there on Twitter. That is true. On the other hand, ISIS is on Twitter. The Iranian mullahs are on Twitter. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is one of the most bizarre QAnon-inspired members of the American House of Representatives, still has a Twitter account. She was booted off one, but she still got another. Uh, she's the politician, in case people have forgotten, who blamed the California fires on Jewish lasers from space. Now, do the apparent inconsistencies in any of that give you pause? I, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the the phrase Jewish space lasers always just cracks me up. Like, uh, did the photons? Uh, yeah. Don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> um no, uh, but I, I I agree with you. This is uh, a, a an issue that I, I have lots of complicated feelings about too. I mean, I, I would love elected officials to conduct themselves with more dignity online, and the vast majority do, of course. Uh, but I am also wary of uh, big. Uh, companies making these kinds of decisions without, frankly, any real transparency or accountability. And, and Lord knows we've seen the kinds of processes that these companies have uh, abused and, and uh, weaponized against uh, totally uh, genuine critics. Um, and, and I mean, it's uh, an example of how this stuff gets so messy so quickly was, uh, you know, Facebook announcing that uh, its policy of not advocating violence uh, would be waived because of the Ukraine conflict, that people will be allowed to uh, advocate violence against uh, certain Russian people or the Russian military. Uh, you, you know, you've got a policy, but you end up just contorting yourselves into into to such uh, uh, difficult positions. Um you know, and I don't know what the answer is, uh, except to say that I've definitely got huge reservations about government intervention in political speech. Uh, but the difference between government and uh, private corporations is that we can change governments more easily than we can change the CEO of uh, Twitter or Facebook. That is true. All right, let's move on to um, a little acknowledgement here that this is, of course, the On Poly podcast, meaning we keep an eye on Ontario politics. But two people of some prominence in provincial politics are now making headlines because they've joined the race for the federal conservative leadership. Two Ontario MPs had already indicated their desire to get that job. Carleton MP Pierre Poilievre and Haldeman Norfolk MP Leslin Lewis. And now Brampton Mayor and former Ontario PC Party leader Patrick Brown and the current independent MPP for York Centre Roman Babber. They are both in the race as well, which probably 
uh, should prompt us to do a bit of an update on the state of play here. Where are we at now? Uh, so, yeah, a quick update on uh, the, the state of play here. Uh, Paul Ever has almost half of the Conservative Party caucus endorsing him already. I, I think it's easy to say that he is the the uh, f- the front runner by quite some margin. Opinion polling of party races is always a bit dodgy, but I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, Everybody else is in a distant race for second <laughs> behind Poilievre. Um, but, you know, there are some big names. Uh, former Quebec Premier Jean Charest announced last week that he's trying to return to public life after a decade out of elected office. Uh, of course, he was also the uh, former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party uh, during the 1990s. Uh, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown announced on Sunday morning that he sees a path to victory. He's going to try and sign up uh, tens of thousands of new members uh, for the party. He, you know, he, he has explicitly pitched his party, uh, or rather his candidacy, as a way to uh, help the uh, federal Conservative Party uh, win seats uh, in and around uh, suburban Toronto and uh, specifically in the I guess what we refer to as cultural communities uh, of uh, the GTA suburbs. I, I don't think he's got an easy task ahead of him, but I would not dismiss his chances either. He did, of course, uh, basically run exactly that play against Christine Elliott for the provincial conservative leadership six years ago. Uh, she had all of the caucus support. Uh, he signed up all of the new members. And for about four years, uh, it was... Uh, Patrick Brown leading the opposition uh, at the legislature. Uh, We mentioned uh, Ontario MP Leslyn Lewis. Uh, She represents the riding of Haldeman Norfolk. Uh, She ran previously in the race that Aaron O'Toole uh, eventually won. She had uh, a very strong support from social conservative groups. Uh, We mentioned Roman Babber. Uh, He will be relying on his record of uh, opposing uh, public health policies uh, at the provincial level. Uh, Of course, he was uh, expelled from Doug Ford's uh, conservative caucus uh, provincially uh, over his opposition. Uh, He will be uh, championing freedom and and fewer COVID-related restrictions. that might be a bit of a, a tough path for him, given that Poilievre is, is really already talking about all of that stuff anyway. Uh, two other uh, politicians from Ontario are apparently still considering it. Uh, Perry Sound Muskoka MP Scott Aitchison and a former York Region MP Leona Alislev. Uh, she was a Liberal MP who then crossed the floor to sit as a Conservative uh, in the last Parliament before the uh, 2021 election. That's a lot to take in, but uh, you know, the, I guess the most basic fact remaining is that the Conservative leadership vote uh, will be revealed on September 10th later this year. That timing gets a little sticky for Patrick Brown. And the reason is, if you want to run for mayor, because you don't think you've got a shot at being Conservative Party leader, and I know he's not there right now, I know he thinks he can win, you've got to get your papers in to run municipally by August 19th. So he has a, um, he's got a tricky bridge to, to, to walk over here because if he puts in his papers for mayor of Brampton, are people who are watching the conservative leadership race going to think, huh, you don't really have very much confidence that you're going to win this thing. On the other hand, if he doesn't put in his papers for mayor of Brampton and he loses on September the 10th, it's too late for him to run at that point and he's out of a job. So that's a lot for him to figure out somewhere down the road. It is. Uh, there's another deadline that I think might give him an, a bit of a, an early off ramp, and that is uh, that the um, the cutoff to sell new memberships uh, happens much sooner than September. I believe it is 
June 3rd. Um, and so, I mean, that, of course, comes immediately after the uh, provincial election. And uh, they're going to have some sense of whether they still have a fighting chance, whether it's worth, you know, sticking it out all the, the way through the summer. I mean, if he has managed the task of, of signing up, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of members, let's say, uh, that might be a bit aggressive, but whatever, uh, whatever the number is, if he's managed the task of signing up, uh, you know, a huge number of new members across the country, because of course, it's not going to help him if they because of the way the, the points system in the party is, is allocated, it's not going to help him if he has a huge number of voters in and around the GTA and none anywhere else in the country. He needs a huge number of supporters and, and a really well-dispersed uh, level of support. And they're going to know how well they've done uh, by about June 3rd. And uh, it's entirely possible that he could get to the end of June once, you know, all the dust is settled and say, oh, you know what, we're just, we're not even close. We're not going to make it. And, uh, you know, punch out early and get ready for a, a mayoral re-election run. No, quite true. Uh, I, I think the only thing to keep in mind here is that when he did run for the Ontario PC party leadership, I think he signed up 100,000 new members in Ontario alone. Yeah. So if he's got any kind of tentacles in the rest of the country, and his team, of course, says that they do, uh, you know, if, if he can match that or even come half as much in the rest of the country, uh, he'll, he'll run a competitive race. Should be fascinating. We'll follow it all the way through, of course. Oh, and, and, I, and we should just very quickly add, I mean, the Toronto Star has reported that there is some kind of an, a, a, an agreement between Patrick Brown and Jean Charest uh, that uh, they are not going to try and torpedo each other, that they, they will support the other one uh, on a second or third ballot if it goes that far. Well, you saw the picture on Twitter, didn't you, of Patrick Brown when he was a kid yes. sitting in his bedroom with that <laughs> picture of Jean Charest on his bedroom wall? Yeah, I... I I, I'm a big political dork by the standards of a general, you know, population, and I have never in my life had a politician's uh, face uh, as a poster on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> so you're suggesting this is uh, achieving new heights of dorkdom? You know, respectfully to to the mayor of Brampton. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Well, let's do one more follow-up from last week's pod, and that is we told you that 19 Conservative MPPs were not seeking re-election, even though this is just the government's first term in power. That's an unusually high number of people not seeking re-election from a first-term government. However, last week there was another MPP who decided she's not going to run again even, even though she had already been nominated a year ago to stand for re-election. The MPP in question is Rima Burns-McGowan. She's the NDP member for Beaches East York, who I believe, Mr. McGrath, is your MPP, is she not? Uh, she is indeed. I am a, a proud uh, constituent of uh, the Beaches East York riding. We thought we'd have a chat with Rima Burns-McGowan because, you know, her reasons for declining to run for re-election uh, are uh, quite divorced from politics. And, and uh, you know, we expected that we would get a really uh, interesting, thoughtful uh, discussion. And I, I think we got just that. So uh, here is that conversation. Rima, you were nominated a year ago and obviously gave every indication that you intended to seek re-election. So the obvious first question is, what happened? So I've always been an introvert. That is, and, and I got to say that when I was asked to run, 
for the, in, when the Writing Association first called me in November of 2017, my very first response was like, who are you talking to? I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't do this. I've got a PhD in international politics. I write about this stuff. I think about this stuff. I love to nerd out about this stuff. I don't do it. Um, and then I actually got hold of my partner, David, who was in Malaysia at the time. And I said, I got this ridiculous call. And he's like, no, 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 no. You need to take it seriously. <laughs> And um, David, uh, we're a, a cross-partisan family. Um, when I first met David, David's a liberal. Well, You're a new Democrat. Yeah, when I met him, he was a progressive conservative. So I've been pulling him left since you know 1987. <laughs> um, but uh, but he said you have to take this seriously. And he got hold of Megan Leslie, who's a friend. And the next time she was in town, he made us sit down together and she like stabbed her fork in my general direction. We were sitting at the queen mom having cheesecake saying, you have to take this seriously. You have to think about it. And I said, well, I have three buckets of questions. If I'm a backbencher, can I still be effective? And would I be miserable because I'm an introvert? And she said, well, there's ways around that. Right. And then I said, well, I've never organized to do this. So like, how would I even do it? And on the third point, it turned out that all of my former students at U of T who were turned out to be some of the best organizers in the country had moved into the writing and they're the ones who got me elected. So I blame them. Um, but the introvert piece is something that I've been actually working on assiduously uh, ever, ever since I did get elected. Um, and a couple of years ago, it was actually a physiotherapist who pointed me in the direction of a book called Quiet, uh, The Power of Introverts in a World That Won't Stop Talking by a woman named Susan Cain, C-A-I-N, and it was instrumental in helping me to understand that this isn't about me being shy. I was paralytically shy as a child. I'm not any longer. And I love people. I was an interviewer, you know, for, for a living as, as an academic. I love people. But the problem with politics is that you never get to recharge. The introvert brain needs to step away. Um, and it needs to, to just sit by itself and it needs to contemplate and it needs to regroup. And in politics, you never get to do that. And I have spent the, an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to do this job while protecting myself as an introvert. And clearly a year ago, I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm managing. This is okay. I can, I can keep going. But it's become increasingly difficult when I say that this job takes its toll um, as an introvert and as an empath, which is something I didn't put in the statement because who knows what an empath is. But as an empath, what that means is you actually feel other people's pain as though it's your own. And given everything we've been through, and this is a particularly interesting time to have been an MPP, you get exposed to a lot of people's pain. And as you know, I'm the critic for poverty and homelessness, and I have really thrown myself into that role, as you will also know. And I have, you know, watched homelessness, which was already a huge issue, become this enormous crisis. I've worked with the folks in Crescent Town, which is a immigrant working class part of the riding, um, you know, try desperately to maintain their housing, uh, maintain their health. Uh, under terrible conditions, and I've worked with them to, you know, reverse those evictions that they were subject to, et cetera, et cetera. That's a lot of pain that you're absorbing while you're trying to protect people. So the, the, when I say I'm an introvert and an empath and it's taken a toll, 
that is what's happened. And I finally got to the point a couple of weeks ago where I was like, I actually can't keep doing this. And, you know, just FYI, David was like, yes, you can. <laughs> it's like, you are, you are doing a kick-ass job. You're doing incredible. You can keep going <laughs> incredibly. And, and I finally had to say, I love you and thank you, but I actually can't. <laughs> this is not the support you need <laughs> yeah and i said i and i and i really appreciate it and he's my uh, david's brilliant if you don't know david you should know david steve knows david's brilliant and i love his analysis and i think he is right 99.9 percent .9 of the time but this was the time i had to say i understand why you're saying that but you need to see from where i'm sitting this is this is not i need to step aside You've already mentioned, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, your your sort of mental health needs, but uh, presumably part of the reason you are not running again is that there were other parts of the job that you just didn't enjoy. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, if you could elaborate on that. I mean, some of the stuff at Queens Park, perhaps. For sure, I love the community work, and I didn't know that I was going to love it so much, but I loved it. So the reason that I stepped up in the first place, and I think that this is important to understand, is that a lot of former students of mine said, you know, you've got such really smart ideas about how to make society equitable and how to make it work for everybody. And you need a bigger platform than a classroom. So please step up and do this. And, and I think that, you know, again, reading uh, the book on introverts, it, it, this is a job made for extroverts. And when introverts step up into it, it's always because they're willing to put their discomfort on hold in order to make a bigger point or try to do something bigger. So my bigger thing that I wanted to do was to talk about why we need systemic change, why throwing crumbs at problems and bones to people is not going to solve the problem. We need big systemic change here are some of the big issues I wanted to step up and talk about. The thing I've loved in community is where there, where issues have come up that are emblematic of those big issues. And then to be able to work with community to try to address those issues, but then to use that as, as at Queen's Park to say, so here's the bigger issue that we need to fix. I've loved that. And I've actually loved the work in the legislature. I love the fact, you know, I was I was very gratified by Rob Benzie's tweet this morning when he said it was a loss to the legislature that I was leaving because I'm not always sure that reporters are watching when nobody's around. But I've always enjoyed in the middle of a debate on something when I stand up watching government members put their phones down. And because I always stand up and say, OK, let me connect some dots for you. And they always say, even when they vehemently disagree, they say, wow, I've really learned something today. And that part I've really loved. I hate the politics of politics. I detest the politics of politics. The politics of politics are toxic. And this is not the problem of any one party. It's a much bigger issue than that. You know, Steve, just yesterday, I read your piece on John Duffy. And I went and watched that segment of the agenda where the you, you had... John Duffy and Martha Hall Findlay, a couple of other people on talking about whether or why we can't get big things done anymore. And, you know, the toxicity of politics was behind a lot of what they were talking about. And there are some really big issues that I think they weren't thinking about in that segment 
But those things go to the very heart of what we're talking about here today and why people like me either don't step up in the first place or if they do uh, become physically ill or leave, uh, perhaps before they've contributed everything that they would have liked to have contributed. Well, because you hate the politics of politics so much, I naturally, of course, want to ask you more about that. So here we go. You know that the nature of politics is such that when a well-regarded, respected MPP leaves after just one term, and that's your set of circumstances, uh, people will uh, people will look for different explanations. They will say, oh, she doesn't believe in Andrea Horvath anymore. She doesn't think the NDP can win the next election. Uh, she doesn't think she herself could get reelected. Is any of that the case here? If I thought I wasn't going to get reelected, would I be doing this right now? No, I would not. I would simply run and lose and go, woohoo, I'm free. No, that is not. The thing is, I have a pretty darn good chance of winning the next election. And the issue is, this is not about Andrea and it's not about the NDP. It has nothing to do with that. Again, I am not a politician and I didn't get into that to be a politician. Um, I got into this in order to make some very particular arguments about needs for systemic change. And the issue that I'm talking about, the toxicity that I'm talking about, is not a, a problem of any particular party. It is a problem of the way that the system has devolved right now. It's obviously exacerbated by social media and the toxicity on there, which is not fun. And, you know, I don't know if either of you are an introvert or no introverts, but if you're a serious one, these kinds of issues really do become issues. This is not just a thing that I'm saying because I don't want to talk about something else. This is really a thing. <laughs> um, it's really a thing. And I want to be able to contribute. And I keep finding myself, like, I have these, like, I, I am a nerd in what I think is the best possible way. And there's all kinds of stuff after having put myself at, in, the, in the thick of things that I now wanna step out and go, I actually have things I wanna say about how we could do politics better, how we could fix it. And it's particularly true as a woman, it's true as somebody who is seen as racialized and um, experiences that uh, so experiences politics differently from the way a white man would experience it, for instance. I said to David the other day, I feel as though I've done three terms. I feel as though I've done 12 years worth of work uh, in, in four years. And I think that some of my racialized colleagues would say the same thing because you're constantly having to kind of explain the world to a system that doesn't necessarily understand how it's not equitable at the same time as you're navigating it, at the same time as you're doing the same job that everybody else is doing. You've spoken a lot about what you think is, is wrong uh, with the way politics is practiced today, the toxicity you've talked about. Uh, how do you think it might be fixed? I have so many ideas. Um, I have so many ideas and we, we could be here for days. So I, I, I will just say that I think I, so I think that there are ways that you can circumvent the divisiveness and the uber partisanship and the, the sort of gotcha nature of it. Um, and that is the, the trouble is when that becomes it, it, it's a disease that infects everybody. It's not just it's it's something that is that becomes there in the system. Um, my very first job. I had been traveling overseas and I'd come back in 1985 to Ottawa where my 
where I had been living before and where I'd gone to Carleton. I'd been overseas for three years. And I came back and Peter Harder, who's now a senator, was living on the street where my where my parents were living. And he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm looking for a job that's not very demanding so that I can write about my experiences. And he said, well, he was running the office. He was chief of staff to the office of the deputy prime minister, who was Eric Nielsen under, this was in the Mulroney government. And he said, well, we're looking for a receptionist. And I said, well, I'm not a conservative. And he said, we don't care. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I spent uh, a year working as a receptionist in Eric Nielsen's office, uh, first in the PCO and then on the Hill. And then I worked for the junior minister of finance and Michael Wilson, who was the minister of finance, ended up writing my letter of reference for grad school. I never became a conservative. Um, but there was a kind of like, you're not a conservative. You're like this weird little lefty who's in our midst, but that's okay. That kind of thing would never happen today. And it just would never, ever, ever happen. People check your credentials going way back and, and they won't let you in the door if you're not, you know, and there's a, and so that, that's a problem because I've given you a very small example, but if you think about the way that that manifests across the system, it creates real trouble. And it's one of the reasons we can't get big things done. Because we're always looking for these gotcha moments. We're never encouraging. Um, we're never working across parties. We're never able to, we're, you know, people get into power. Like the first thing that the conservatives did when they got in was to erase a lot of the things that um, the liberals had done before them. So how they wasted, they literally wasted debate time doing that. Like, well, how does that make any sense? You know, how do you, you need to, we need to build forward in a way that understands that perhaps all of us, even if we have different approaches, want to make life better. And so how do we do this in a more collaborative way? I've watched committee meetings where really smart community groups and evidence-based folks have come and said, here's how you could make this bill better. But because it wasn't coming from the, in this case, the conservative government side, those committee um, suggestions are dismissed out of hand. How does this make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. Those are just, you know, a few of the, a few of the ideas. We have to fix, um, we have to fix Twitter. We just have to. Like, I mean, the waves of hate uh, and the way that you get sort of knocked sideways by those waves of hate, we got to fix that stuff. It seems to fall to me uh, to ask the uh, partisan political questions here, so I'm going to throw another one your way. <laughs> and that is, I mean, here's the political reality. The political reality is that by departing before the election, you're making Beaches East York, your seat, much more competitive than it might otherwise be. Uh, the liberals will now certainly think they, well, they do. They have a better shot at winning this seat now than they did when you were contesting it. So it makes me it makes me wonder whether Andrea Horvath or somebody in her team came to you at some point and said, look, we get we get why you feel you can't run again, but we really need this seat. And can't you just run, hopefully win it, and then step down six months later? Did that conversation happen? You know, it didn't because they understood when I said, I mean, they could feel. I'm, I'm very open and honest and transparent. And, and so I, when I said, I really can't do this anymore, and I have tried and tried and tried to figure out how to do it, but I can't, they were very compassionate about that. And um, I felt uh, that it was not fair to the electorate to 
win the election and then go, okay, now what? And then trigger a by-election. That seems super irresponsible, um, fiscally and in every other way. So, so I, you know, didn't think that that was okay. And the fact is there are some, as I was, you know, saying earlier, like incredibly talented people who, um, smart, talented, thoughtful, progressive folks who live in beaches and in East York. We're just such an amazing riding, I think. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, there's lots of really great people who, who could step up and, uh, and do this job. And I will, absolutely be there saying to people vote for this amazing person keep the seat orange i guess just to finish us off uh you know you were uh previously an academic uh, now you've been an mpp uh what uh, what do you want to do next i want to write a book <laughs> i want to write a book on on how we can like as somebody who's been here and been in the middle of it how do we make it how do we make it better how do we make it so that we can actually get big things done? Um, how do we get it so that we can actually have a society that works for everyone? And by the way, I think those two things are inextricably entwined. And I think that as long as we continue to treat the second thing as a side issue, we cannot fix the big things. Uh, Canada is just too diverse and we are we have we have always been for for decades too good at understanding the needs of all the folks uh so to to try to be performative about that and then go on trying to govern as though that's not actually central is getting in the way so i would like to write about how to fix that well, I don't know if you've written books before, but if, if you need any pointers, Steve has written like a dozen since we started recording this podcast. So. <laughs> no, I, I, John Michael, I was just going to say, I'm glad, Remy, you want to write that book because I really want to read that book. Amazing. So good luck to you. <laughs> Amazing. Good. Thank you for spending so much time with us on the On Poly podcast. We're really grateful. Thanks for having me. That's Rima Burns-McGowan, the outgoing MPP for Beaches East York, with some, I think, really fascinating insight into why we need introverts in public life, even as she does acknowledge um, her time in elective politics is done. You know, without um, wanting to at all uh, dismiss her, her choices, because I think she, you know, she's served as an MPP for four years and for four hard years uh, in this legislature. Um, but I am curious about the decision as somebody who who is introverted, you know, why a person like that would uh, get into elected politics in the first place, a, a, a profession that is just not <laughs> notoriously kind to introverts. There's no question there's a lot more backslappers in public life than there are people who prefer to sit in the corner and read a policy journal about some such thing. No doubt about that. But, you know, politics to work in a democracy really needs all kinds of people in there, right? Absolutely. You need tall people, short people, men, women, everything in between. You need introverts, you need extroverts, people of all shapes and colors and so on. And and if we only have the backslappers in public life, we definitely are missing something. I will be really interested to see when that book is done, because I'd like to know, you know, our, I think the one thing the war in Ukraine reminds us is that is that, you know, we may not be doing democracy perfectly, but it's sure a damn sight better than a, what a lot of people around the world have. And if she's got some uh, well thought through ideas, which I'm sure she will on how to make some improvements to our democracy, I'm all ears. I want to hear them.
Well, I, if I can shamelessly plug our work at TVO, of course, uh, I, you know, I wrote something about, uh, gosh, uh, late last year, I think, uh, about how I think, you know, this coming election would be uh, a really uh, great opportunity to to talk about a democracy agenda for Ontario, for lack of a better word. And and I, I would love to see, uh, obviously, the opposition parties, but I would love to hear what the progressive conservatives think about, you know, what kind of democratic reforms, either like the legislature or municipalities or, or uh, anything that's basically, you know, the, the provincial universe, uh, what we could do there. Here, here. Well, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you, to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Uh, we also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, same as the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly newsletter. What did we write about this week? Oh, yeah, we, we did the conservative leadership race, didn't we? Uh, yes, we've... we've banged that drum quite a bit this week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have. Well, it needed to be banged. This is a big week in terms of candidates getting in. Here now is my quote of the week, and this is Doug Ford last Friday responding to a question about the immunosuppressed and whether the ending of the mask mandate could affect their health. Here's the reporter's question and the premier's answer. Um, and I'm wondering what you would say to those people about, you know, the way forward uh, as we begin to get out of this pandemic, hopefully. Well, I'd say keep your mask on. Uh, and that's going to be an option. That's the direction uh, we received from, from Dr. Moore. And as you see right across the country, I think BC announced they're dropping it uh, today. They just announced it and bang, dropped it. And we're, we're one of the last jurisdictions in North America to be doing this. And I've always been cautious. Uh, as I say, uh, I've been accused of being the most cautious and I have no problem with being the most cautious. And we're going to continue to be cautious. So anyone who wants to wear a mask, uh, I encourage you to wear a mask. Doug Ford, last Friday in Innisfil, Ontario. And my quote of the week comes from Pierre Poilievre, who's the frontrunner for the Federal Conservative Party leadership race. And uh, he had something to say about his latest rival for that post, uh, Mayor Patrick Brown of Brampton. Patrick Brown will say and do anything uh, but the reality is that uh, he and I disagree on his carbon tax. Uh, Mr. Brown endorses a carbon tax and believes that gas prices should be more expensive. Uh, I can't understand that point of view. Uh, right now, Canadians are paying upwards of a buck seventy a liter. Many uh, Canadians feel like they can't even have the freedom of mobility because it's too expensive to gas up their vehicles and get where they're going. So I disagree with uh, Patrick Brown and Justin Trudeau on their carbon tax. I will get rid of the tax and I will uh, pursue technology, not taxes, results and not revenue. That's Pierre Poilievre speaking in Markham on Monday. Uh, no love lost between the uh, early conservative uh, candidates. <laughs> oh, he's taking shots at Brown. He's taking shots at Chere. He's taking shots, man. He's uh, yeah. the Marcus of Queensbury rules. Throw him out for this leadership. I got a feeling they're not going to be around for too much longer. As an observer, I will just sit back and, you know, make popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.